2: Hey, this is Mac B, host of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock podcast. I'm here with Jay at the Hook Rock. You won-
3: Hey, welcome back, everybody. It is Jay Scott, and it is the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Thanks for tuning in once again. Appreciate you stopping by. We've got a great episode for you today. We've got our third or fourth installment of the live album review. We started off back last summer doing Thin Lizzy Live and Dangerous, as well as the second one, Live After Death with Iron Maiden. And this past quarter, we did. Rockin' the Fillmore, the great Humble Pie album, and today's album is going to be Kiss Alive, the 1975 Casablanca recording. Before we get into that, just wanted to make mention that I am part of the Pantheon podcast platform, or The Hook Rocks is part of the Pantheon podcast platform, a great platform of music-related podcasts. You can check out some of my friends on there, as I always mention. Vinny Apice, Carmen and Ron and Esti on the Hanging and Banging podcast. Martin Popoff, the rock historian. Decibel Geek, my uh, friends down in Nashville. Tom and Zeus, the Great Kiss podcast. Shout out Loudcast. Mistress Carrie out in Boston. And Mac on the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast. Check out him. He's a great dude to listen to. Talks about a lot of classic albums. As well as some of my friends outside of Pantheon, like the Itch Rock and Radio Show, Chicks Who Love Music, Bend in Scoop, and Pot of Thunder. Check out all my friends. There's a lot of other podcasts that I have had on the show and that uh, have a good relationship with. So go look those up too, as well. Give those a listen and then give their podcast a listen to. We've had some great episodes lately here on the podcast. We've got uh, Mark Tremonti talking about Tremonti Sings Sinatra, so check out that interview. We also did a great interview with Joe Satriani, talking about his new album, The Elephants of Mars. Ty Tabber from King's S stopped on by. Uh, shortly before that, we've had some great new music spotlights in the month of April. We had Six Sense, Chains Over Razors, Bestet, and Kurt Dimer. Let's check those four out. We just released a playlist of three songs from each Uh, artist and band that we had on and some great music commentary lately. We did our end of the quarter, January through March album review, top 10 album review with Chris Corradetti with some contributions from the groove console. Don't forget to follow the hook rocks wherever you do podcasts on every platform. Don't forget to download your app to uh, download all the latest hook rocks episodes. So set your app for that. And without further ado, our next live album review with Rob in the hood, you can follow him at the Recivitus on Twitter. And love talking about Kiss. Love talking about this album, Kiss Live. And no one better to do it with than my partner with the live album reviews. What's happening, Rob? How are you?
0: Hey Jay, I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing?
3: Good, good. You know, we were just talking about live performances before we got on live here. I just uh, did three shows in a row with my son, the Youth Rocks, on Twitter. Uh we saw the warning on Thursday night at the bottom lounge in Chicago, the Displains Theater from you know, my hometown, uh, in Displains, Illinois, with Blacktop Mojo and Buck Cherry. And then last night, well, last night when we we're recording this was the Dorothy Joyce Wolf and Classes Act Show at the House of Blue Chicago. So I am dragging a bit today. You know, I mean, three shows in a row, three nights in a row is is not uh doesn't give you the same fuzzy feeling as it did <laughs> years ago. But it was spectacular nonetheless. All bands were great. And, uh, yeah, it was it was a great performance last night. Probably gives you a different fuzzy feeling than it used to. <laughs> it does. It's it's, it's more of that cuddle up with a blanket in my bed <laughs> fuzzy
0: feeling.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've Don't seen, wake I've me seen, up.
0: I've seen a couple of shows recently myself. I did, uh, as I mentioned to you, I, I saw uh, Corrosion of Conformity in the Melvins opening for ministry um, about a week and a half ago. That was really cool. Just been, I've seen both Corrosion and Conformity and the Melvins um, about 25 years apart in, in venues. And they're both great acts to, ca- to catch. I saw Sasquatch and High Desert Queen um, about a month and a half ago at a small little venue in Costa Mesa, California. Um, those, the bands brought their A-game. I got to tell you, the, uh, the singer for High Desert Queen – is a dynamic showman and he like was standing next to me throughout sauce Watch's set. And he was so into it. He like brought the show alive just wherever he was going. So good bands to check out.
3: Yeah. You mentioned that about high, um, high desert queen. And, yeah. uh, I have to check them out. I gotta, I gotta really dive more into their music. Uh, a lot of people have said a lot of great things about them. They, they did end up on quite a few people's lists on the groove council at the end of the year, so I wonder if they'll be stopping by Chicago. That'll be interesting to see.
0: If you get a chance to go see them, I recommend it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. They probably, if they do play Chicago, will probably play this venue called Reggie's, which is like South Loop, uh, not Southside Chicago, but South Loop. Uh, it's a great venue. I've seen a lot of shows there. So I'm thinking if if that style of band plays anywhere, it'll probably be there. Cool. Cool. So we have another album to talk about, another album to kind of kick back and and talk about the great things, kind of the the back end of the story or behind the story of this album, uh, as we do with Live and Dangerous, which we talked about, Thin Lizzy, and, of course, the impact Live After Death in the 80s that it had for Iron Maiden and Rockin' the Fillmore, which really was the catalyst for all the live albums in the 70s. But this album was really the probably the most recognizable live album in the 70s because it meant so much to rock music and it meant so much to the band, meant so much to the label they were on. This was really an album that had to be successful because the band, KISS, was not doing very well. Their first three albums did not sell very well. The energy on the album created, you know, was was non-existent because of like because of the sound quality. So, Casablanca Records, which was having financial difficulty, uh, released this Tonight Show vinyl album, like double vinyl album, like highlights from the Tonight Show. I think it was with Johnny Carson, and they were hoping that was going to save the label because The Tonight Show was so popular and, you know, obviously had Doc Severinsen, which a lot of, you know, big band and, and jazz uh, fans really admired. So they released this album and it didn't do anything. It it, it, it was basically an absolute failure. So it meant a lot to the artists too, because the artists on Casablanca, mainly Kiss, uh, had no momentum. They didn't have enough money to really... Market the albums as well as they could, and Kiss was suing them for breach of contract to try to get out of 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 Casablanca. And Neil Bogart, who was the owner of Casablanca Records, decided to put some of his own money into a Kiss live album, and the live album was recorded with in parts, you know, of of, Michigan Show think a Cleveland show and a New Jersey show. Uh, there may have been one more, but those were the three main shows and basically poured his own money into this and crossed his fingers. And lo and behold, it became the biggest album for kiss at that time. And I believe maybe destroyer is probably the only one that can maybe compete with it, which was the album right after the kiss alive. But without this album, casablanca kiss and maybe rock music at that time definitely takes a step back because this really did mean a lot to the genre yeah i
0: think the fourth show that they included in some of the recordings was in davenport iowa Mm -hmm. um and and so it was all i think they were all shows from 1975 um after Dress to kill came out and and you're right the first three kiss albums the, the soft titled album hotter than hell and just to kill i'll have i don't know you listen to them and, so, and sometimes there's good songs there and i enjoy listening to them but sometimes they just feel tired um and, and some of that may be as a result of the production standards that they were now used to and going back and listening to it but uh they don't have the same energy that um the subsequent performances that you hear on the alive album um have and sometimes i think that the guitars sound a little too dry on those first three albums like there's i'm not i'm not one that likes things to be drenched in effects but it's like there's not a whole lot of dynamic quality to some of the sound and and the drums don't really like come out and beat you as much as you really like to on a, on a live album or i mean on a rock album
3: it is really important when we talk about kiss alive to make mention of those first three albums because you're right it, to me it doesn't sound necessarily tired it just sounds flat yeah. Um, but to go through each album before this Kiss Alive record, you know, the first debut album has a lot of great songs, a lot of great songs that are still known today, like Strutter, Deuce, Cold Gin, and Black Diamond, and it was, yeah, um, Let Me Go Rock and Roll, no, Let Me Go Rock and Roll, I think it was on Hotter Than Hell. But, again, they didn't have that energy with the music. Hotter Than Hell, great songs, a lot of great deep cuts, like Coming Home is on there, and obviously the title track, Parasites on there. The production on that album is absolutely atrocious. You can't even fix that on the mixes, you know. Uh, And then the third album, Dress to Kill, of course, has the big hit Rock and Roll All Night. And, you know, Rock Bottom is on there and Come On and Love Me. So there was a, a lot of great tracks, but it was either poor production or it was very flat. And you had this intrigue because of the way they looked with their faces and their performances had a reputation of being incredible. But for whatever reason, they just couldn't match those performances live with, within the studio. And it was genius to have them do a live record. It really was, when when you think about it, because you're trying to capture the essence of what this band is. Now, oddly enough, the performance is audio and it's not a visual performance, which the band was really huge on its own visual. However, that album cover really brought the intrigue to another level. You know, here you are with these four guys on the cover of this album, this live performance that looks like complete chaos and rebellion on the front cover. And then you put the vinyl on, you put the album on, and the audio matches that chaos and rebellion perfectly. It really does.
0: Yeah, it, it kind of looks like a post-apocalyptic anarchic scene from that's on the cover. It's got some cool, it's cool stuff in the in the liner notes too. Like you got notes written from each of the band members to the fans, and of course you're immediately drawn to Gene Simmons's note, which says, "Dear Victims." (laughs) So it has that same uh, kind of sinister mystique about it that um, the band liked to portray. Um, You know, I think that there's it's probably worth mentioning that um, the there's been some controversy about the overdubs that are on this album because they're certainly there. Um, the one that bugs me the most is the crowd, um, because it feels, it wasn't a live album. You really like to hear the, like the back and forth between the the performer and the audience. So you feel like they're all part of one, one event. And on this one, with a couple of exceptions during Paul having like his banter with the crowd, the crowd almost sounds like a, one of those TVs that has a, a setting for football, that you're watching, it has a constant level of crowd noise behind it where it doesn't sound like it's actually part of the event. And so that's like one of my biggest qualms about the album. But the the songs definitely have much more energy to them than the the studio albums did. And it gives you a a sense of that get up out of your seat and move kind of thing.
3: I'm curious to ask about you know, your thoughts on those overdubs with with the crowd that essentially it was admitted probably about 10 years ago. Gene finally kind of broke the news that there was overdubs with the crowds. And I think there was some things done in the studio to kind of up, you know, up the game on the performance. But did we think that when the album first came out, right? I mean, without Gene saying that, would we would we even have this discussion about, what you just said about the crowd.
0: I probably would not have, it's something that probably would not have crossed my mind. Yeah. uh, A couple of decades ago, at least, or even further back. Um, I certainly listen to a lot more live albums now than I used to. And I certainly have the benefit of having gone to a lot of shows where I'm, I'm much more cued into how is the performer interacting with the audience? And how do you catch that audibly? Um, like the performer does something and the crowd reacts to it. Um, back then I'm I'm sure I would have been much more focused on what am I hearing musically as opposed to that constant hum of the crowd that's behind it.
3: Yeah, I'm I, I always like those types of questions that had, you know, had this person not said anything, would we feel that way? Cause I remember when this album came out, this was kind of like the live album Bible for so long. Like if you liked live albums, you had to have this in your collection. And there was no argument or anything about an overdub with the crowd or you know the filter of the crowd put in there was never that discussion and Kiss for many years maintained that it was all recorded the way it was all live albums have some sort of production enhancement the only thing that you really can't change on a live album is the drums but I was actually thinking about that today is if the drums weren't that solid of a performance whatever drummer whoever the drummer is couldn't a band theoretically rent out for like a day you know a a a venue that is open and put the drums on stage and just record the drums for the songs and and do it that way i mean theoretically can't they do that i guess they probably
0: could i don't i don't know how much of a if you had an empty venue but then you
3: overdub be- the crowd in, you do it. I mean, yeah. Does, yeah. does a live album really need to be live <laughs> at this point?
0: Well, they're, and there's certainly different types of live albums. And I think we've talked about this a little before where you have some that are like one performance where it captures one evening. Right. And then you have some that are kind of pieced together from different performances and some that are sort of like a live studio album where it's kind of like a, a blend of, we took this performance and used that for the basis with its energy involved. And then plugged in things where it seemed like you could use a little bit of plaster around the edges.
3: Yeah, I I think they all do it to some extent because no live album is or no live performance is perfect. Uh, I like those imperfections. I, I I appreciate listening to that stuff because I think it just adds to the mystique and it adds to what makes the band great and the performance great too. Is I don't want to go see a band sound exactly like the album i wanted it to sound good but i wanted to have those imperfections i wanted to have that audience based performance you know we have the synergy of the crowd and you're you're kind of like on another level and you're just you're feeding off the energy and i witnessed that last night at the joyous wolf show and dorothy show where they had the 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 fans in the palm of their hand and they, they were feeding off that energy and the energy was great. And it almost likes that, you know, the, the, the artist ups their game because of it, right. They start to get that, that natural high of having that audience give them, you know, that synergy and that energy to them. So I always enjoy when, when that happens, it's a, it's a great experience. And I think, One of the things that's never really talked about with Kiss Alive is how this album really upped the game for them and really upped the game for others in rock music at the time. You release an album like this and you have the audience get seduced by the album and just Fall in love with it and be like, Man, this is great. I gotta go see Kiss. Yeah, I have to go see Kiss. You know, that's what. Oh my, I gotta go see the explosions. I gotta see the breathing fire. I gotta see the The blood blood coming coming. out of the guy's mouth. I gotta see Paul Stanley and his banter and Ace's guitar go on fire. And they gotta step it up after that. I mean, they can't let anybody down. I mean, they've got to keep upping the game and then. Once they up the game, then everybody's got to up their game because now they've set the bar. So not only this album set the table for other live albums in, in the 70s, it also was reason for a lot of these bands improving their performance and being on their A game night after night because of the live album decade, which was the 70s.
0: Yeah. I mean, it certainly is. I mean, one of the reasons you go to a, a live show is because of the unpredictability. If you want to hear exactly what's on the studio recording, you can just sit and listen to it at home. You want to go and see something that might be a little bit different. That might be a little bit adventurous. That might make you feel like there's a little bit of danger involved. And certainly Kiss gave everybody that thrill. Um, and and you want to experience what you're hearing but see you know looking at this that there's a lot of sensory input that goes beyond just the sound and certainly this brought showmanship to the next level when it comes to rock and roll
3: absolutely you're if you're a a rival band and you you think you're better live than kiss and they released this album you've got to you've got to put on your a-game because you know this is now the thing back in the 70s if we transport ourselves to the mid 70s Where all these bands now start releasing live albums, not only that you know that they have to you know step their game up, but they got to do it for the fans and for you know future performances. You you think of Peter Frampton with Frampton Comes Alive. You think of Unleashed in the East with Judas Priest, which I think was '79. Strangers in the Night with UFO and Live and Dangerous, Thin Thin Lizzie, and I'm, I'm probably forgetting at least a dozen albums off the top of my head, but. Uh, this was a very important album for rock and roll and for other bands performing live and putting out live records.
0: Yeah. Interestingly enough, it was produced by the the same guy who was the sound engineer for the last album that we talked about, the Humble Pie uh, performance rock rocking the Fillmore. It was Eddie Kramer who did the production on this, this album. And so he was obviously finding the right, way to capture live performances and present it as a in an album format
3: that's interesting because as we mentioned in the rock and for rock and the film war performance with by humble pie that album really was the catalyst for the live performance right i mean when you hear that when all these bands are coming out in the 70s and influenced by humble pie and they listen to that live album i mean that is really the standard that uh you know, that they're that they're going out and performing and w- how they want to capture their music and who better to do it than eddie kramer that did both kiss alive and rocking the Fillmore.
0: yeah yeah it really does um you, you just listen to it and it kind of gives you like a trip back in time to to when you had smoky filled arenas and, and and some stadium show it was begin- kind of the beginning of the era where stadiums were getting filled and everybody would be part of almost like this little mini city that was a, an experience because uh, everything was, was large about it. I think the first time I saw kiss and became aware of kiss was in 1976 when they appeared on the Paul Lind Halloween special. And I had heard, I had a couple of friends. I mean, I was really young, but I had a couple of friends who were already getting into kiss and I didn't know much about it. So I thought, Oh, I want to watch this. And so my parents weren't in the room. I was turning on the TV to, to see what this was all about. And I am thinking, oh my God, this is like, the devil has come to us. I, I can't look away. And it, it was really kind of pulled you in. And it, and it was about the same time that this album was out there and just really taking off. And so it was, there was, it was very seductive in the way it was presented.
3: <laughs> I remember the first performance I saw by Kiss was on Solid Gold. <laughs> I think it was for the album, The Elder, I want to say, maybe, <clears throat> Maybe it was The Elder. I think they did I, uh, which I think was the first single or second single off the album. But, yeah, you made mention, too, about where we both talked about having the imperfections in a live performance. And as we get farther and farther away from the 70s and farther and farther away from the decade that produced so many great classic live albums... We're at the point now with rock performances that are recorded, that have tracks, that are getting farther and farther away from a true live performance. We just had the train wreck known as Santa Cruz play in play at the Whiskey Go-Go in California. And we've all seen the footage, or most people who uh, have seen the footage, if, if no one has. Basically, Santa Cruz, I think, is a band from Sweden uh or finland sweden or finland that came and did a small tour of the u.s western states i want to say or maybe it was just a one-off gig at the whiskey go-go and they recorded the performance and the performance was like star search or like a talent show where they were lip-syncing and so much to the point where they didn't even try to disguise it they basically turned their backs to the stage while the track is played, while the vocals are being played, and the vocalist is not even there. And there was a lot of debate on social media after this about playing the tracks. And I, I think for the most part, the majority still loves that pure performance, but there is a rising demographic that is okay with tracks because they want to hear what the album sounds like. And to those people who are listening, that is completely the opposite of a live performance. If you want to hear the album, stay home and listen to the album. It'll make you happy. It'll make you feel good. But if you want to go see them perform it live, they're not performing it live. If there's tracks or they're lip syncing, that's not a live performance. That is a performance, but it's not a live performance. Yeah, it's oh. more like. A-
0: choreography.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I'm getting a little because it seems to grow each year with this approval or this acceptance that is the use of tracks. Uh, and I don't know why people think a live performance has to be perfect. And kudos to those bands that do replicate that live that live that album with a live performance, right? I mean, getting as close to it as possible. There are bands that are absolutely phenomenal live and and have great sound and can do it and they're doing it naturally they're doing it authentically but the energy is the rock and roll i should say has always been about that live energy and those imperfections and a bit of sloppiness and a little bit of rawness and you can't get that if you're playing tracks or lip syncing
0: i gotta tell you as somebody who plays guitar and often not well but I, i play when you play something especially if you're performing with your band and you accidentally play something that sounds fantastic, there's there's no feeling like that. And you're not going to get that unless you're actually playing and, and you don't have it all choreographed out or scripted out. And and, and that's what I'm looking for in a live show. I, w- I want to see something created in front of me, whether or not it's intended. And I have a lot more respect for a band that will go out there and play it raw and and play without a net and and show me what they're really all about, because I will enjoy that a lot more than I would listening to something play through the PA that isn't them.
3: You know, we've had a conversation about cover bands, right? And and doing that. And and I want to like kind of quantify my issue with cover bands. And I'm gonna give and, and I'm gonna give you an example of that. And this is this, and especially here, I don't know how it is by you, but here in Chicago, there's about maybe about a half dozen to ten cover bands that take themselves way too seriously, right? Like it's, it's just, it's, it's gross how they, they, they act. So there's this band in the Chicago area that's been around for a long time and they play predominantly covers and every one of them in the band is an asshole. Basically they're just arrogant. And I don't know why they're playing other, you know, they're playing other people's music and yet they think like they're, they're like the Beatles. So I'm at a festival a few years and disappointed to see that this band was playing at the festival cuz I was like oh, I really don't want to see this band. So here's the setup what they do, Rob. And this is this is the essence of my problem. Like I don't care if it's a cover band playing in a bar and people dancing have a good time. That's great. They should do that. But this is the essence of my problem. So here they are on stage at this this, this festival and they've got two big screens up And for every song they play, they have the song, like the video playing, okay, of of the band, of the popular. whether it's an 80s song or a 90s song or a 70s song or whatever. And I'm watching this and I'm getting frustrated. And one of my buddies is like, what are you getting so frustrated about? I'm like, they're playing to a track. They're playing other people's music to a track. He's like, how do you know? I go, look at the videos. The videos are in sequence with the song. Okay. They have to be on with the song minute by minute, second by second. And I go, watch when that guitar player picks up his right hand and that guitar is still making a sound that's not being played. He's watching. He's like, yeah, you're right. So when I see a a group of musicians who aren't even playing... (laughs) trying a crowd to other people's music that is the problem i have with cover bands at least in the chicago area <laughs> yeah, see, well and i think that i think that i have come out in defense
0: of cover bands since i play in one
3: well, no but, um, but like, there's two different types there's that yeah. and then there's there's these guys that like come on what are you doing up there you're not even yeah, we, doing it we,
0: we we play for fun in, in local bars and, and if we get like free beer out of it. That's cool with us. We're we're playing for the fun of playing. And I think one of the things that I like, I mean, sometimes you'll get interesting cover songs that'll be thrown into a live album that a band isn't known for doing before. And I always think that's pretty cool. Whether it's they're giving their own interpretation of a song or something new about it, usually you get a little more like energy or rawness to it. Or they're exposing a, a song to an audience that otherwise wouldn't have heard it, which we talked about with the humble pie. We were taking like some old standards and giving it kind of like a, a new look by putting it into the rock and roll format. And so I, I can tell you that I don't like tribute bands. Um, I don't, I, I get nothing out of watching a band pretend to be somebody else. Um, and I know there's a lot of that out there. And I see it all the time in some of the local venues. There's some of them that are like, they're making a living out of doing that. That's great. You're playing music and it's hard to make a living as a musician. I get it. Um, but I don't really have any interest in seeing that. Um, so actually now coming back a little bit to, to our album, one of the things that I think is, is interesting and admirable is that there are no cover songs on this. It's all Kiss stuff. And, and it gives you uh, a sense of the fact that well, obviously, Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons wrote a lot of the songs, but you still have the influence of Peter Chris and, and Ace Frehley because um, they they all bring songwriting to the band. They all sang, although Ace was kind of pushed to the side when it comes to vocals, um, but it's original stuff, and I think that's a great thing about this album.
3: I agree. They didn't do many covers. In fact, I think in their first six studio albums, they maybe did two or three. Uh And that was it. I I like the fact that Ace Frehley's performance on here as well. Ace really becomes a guitar hero after this album. And people really do appreciate his playing after this. And, and I think prior to it, that was one of the things that was lacking in those first three studio albums was that recognizable lead guitarist that had all the flash that Ace had. You go... To the three albums after kiss alive destroyer rock and roll over and love gun i mean he's his his guitar is more front and center they they give him a little bit more freedom you can hear that that famous you know vibrato that he has you really didn't get that a lot um, on the first time. you got touches of it but it really didn't stand out as much after that and i think rock and roll over which was recorded after kiss alive was done live in the studio like with all four guys recording yeah. at once instead of doing yeah. their 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 bits each you know for each song, the the other thing that I really like about the album in terms of the performance was from the first song Deuce into Strutter, how sequencing is so important in a live performance, and I don't think there's anyone that does it better than Kiss, in terms of. You know, starting the first song, kicking the kicking the crowd and the in the gut and just kind of keep it going through the whole show. I, I don't I've never experienced a band quite like KISS that really knows how to sequence their songs live and really knows how to tap into that energy um with each song and connect the energy with each song. Deuce is a great opener, a great opener. And a lot of people Recognize Detroit Rock City is a great opener, obviously from Kiss Alive too, but Deuce is really sets the tone on this album. They couldn't have picked a better song to do it.
0: Deuce has an absolutely killer riff. I love the riff in Deuce, um, and I'm actually I, I tend to like, as I think about the, like their cataloging, then Paul sing, and I'm usually I you know when it comes down to the whole Kiss thing, I'm I'm Team Ace. I I love Ace's guitar playing. I think he's got he plays a lot of licks that that people can point to like other things and say they've heard them here. But I think some of it obviously originated with him and he had such great timing and and feel with the way with plugging those those licks in. And they just he is his, his um, phrasing is fantastic. You mentioned his vibrato and it's great. But Deuce, Deuce was a, a, a fantastic way to start the album because it is um, you're at full throttle from the beginning and strutter has that also has a very recognizable riff in it that has like real power behind it. Um, and so having that one, two punch gets you involved in the album right away.
3: Yeah. Ace is a very underrated guitar player. There's a lot of guitar snobs out there who think he's not very good. And I think that's just because they don't like kiss, but he's a phenomenal guitar player. So I had, I had Ty Tabber Couple months ago, and he was talking about "Shock Me," how difficult that song was to learn. And in that conversation, I mentioned my son, who spent weeks trying to learn that guitar solo because it's 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 got a lot of different moving parts. It's not easy to play, and and it's 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 kind of like a its own song within the song. And I remember my son practicing. I can hear him in his bedroom, like cussing and. (laughs) getting frustrated it's it's difficult and that's one of the unique things about ace is that his guitar solos are really standalones within a song but again if one thing comes out of this album outside of the popularity of kiss is the popularity of ace ace really becomes a a popular member of this band more so than gene and paul um because of because of this album and because his role changes after this he's more involved in the live performance he's more i mean he sings the song shock me on the album and then after shock me the popularity with that he becomes more integral in other songs like rocket ride and then into dynasty and unmasked he wrote parasite he wrote cold gin those are both his songs so Ace really becomes the star that breaks out of this album. It's kind of like a breakthrough out of this album, I should say.
0: Yeah, and I think I think Ace has always had a really cool sound, like a good, great tone, mm-hmm. and he's he had his he had his own um, signature Les Paul that had the three pickups, similar to Peter Frampton's three pickups. Um, I mean, although if you look in the in the in the liner of the, the album, he's playing a two pickup Les Paul, but um, you can he- you hear something that he plays. And if you're familiar with his work, you're like, that's, that's Ace Freely. That's, that's something it, it's like he jumps out of the, the song with his solo. It's got such a cool sound to it.
3: Yeah. And, and those first two songs really do play off of it. And it goes in, it got to choose hotter than hell and firehouse finish up side a back in the day when it was vinyl, there were two albums and there were four sides. So this is the first side that gets completed hotter than hell. A great performance. And of course, you know firehouse at the end with the fire truck and then obviously the picture that goes with it is paul stanley in the fireman's helmet which i believe dean clark one of the members of the roof council actually has either a replica of that a vera replica or actual oh, cool. helmet that, <laughs> that, that that he that he wore wore at one of the shows or a few of the shows on that tour i don't know how much he had to pay for it but that's pretty damn cool yeah, we're probably better off not knowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I still remember that. I think it was a black and white picture of him with the, with yeah. the fireman's helmet on taken from that tour, or one of those tours that uh, preceded the album. Uh, on to Side B, you know, Nothing to Lose, Come On and Love Me, Parasite, and She, this is kind of, um, I think, really where the album kind of settles in with these yeah. songs. Nothing mm-hmm. to lose is is kind of one of those forgotten tracks, but Come on and Love Me and Parasite are such powerful, powerful songs. You know, Come on and Love Me. You know, I'm a dancer, romancer. She's a Capricorn, and I'm a Cancer. I mean, <laughs> these are words to live our lives by, Rob. These. Are... <laughs> this, this,
0: this is this is the seventies right there. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but Come on and Love Me is such a it's such a quick song um, on the studio. Uh, version on dress to kill but it, it plays really well on this album because you know it's a it's a it's all kiss songs i should say i shouldn't just sing out this one but all kiss songs really do have that energy that kind of can get a crowd going
0: yeah and then the song that's right in the middle of that you, you already mentioned parasite has that opening riff that has mm-hmm. a lot of power and and energy behind it where it like, I mean, the song itself has like, dare I say again, a menacing tone to it, but that, that riff really, to me, signifies Ace's ability to write something killer in riff format and make it into a song. It's almost like a sabbath type song. Yeah. 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 That's uh that's my favorite song on that side. <laughs>
3: Yeah, and he does a cover of that too. I and mean, he released his his origins. I believe he, re, uh, I believe he sings on that. And I think he sings yeah. the Cold Gin version. But he does do do Parasite as well. I think
0: I have heard a version of him saying Cold Gin.
3: Yeah, yeah. and I,
0: I, you know, I think it's too bad that Ace didn't get to sing more in the band because I know that there was some criticism. Uh, about his vocals compared to the other members of the band, but I think he sings really well. If you listen to his, his the Kiss solo record that he does, like, he does a good job on the vocals. So, um, and even with Freely's comment, um, his vocals I, th- I think don't get the recognition that maybe they deserve.
3: Well, he doesn't have a great voice, but his voice has got a lot of personality. Yeah, it's it's kind of it doesn't blend in with the other. Th-
0: voices that are here but it's yeah. got its own character to it
3: if there's a voice that sounds like new york it's aces yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ace sounds like new york when he sings he's got that that you know that accent in his voice which is rare because you don't hear a lot of accents and singing but right. when Ace sings you you pick up he's he's from new york he's from the bronx um and his pitch is perfect too for singing yeah. yeah. He, again, he doesn't have the range, but his pitch is really good. And he's kind of got that rap style singing where he kind of talks, yeah. you know, when he, when he sings and it's, it's yeah. very unique. And it just goes to show you. I mean, I, we just did the legacy of journey with Chris Preston talking about the powerful vocals of Steve Perry and his range. And you can, you can still love a guy like Steve Perry and also love Ace Freely there are two different styles, two different approaches. Yeah. Obviously no one's ever going to, to criticize Steve Perry or call him, you know, call him something other than a, a great lead singer yeah. for is Just, it's all personality. It's all flair. It's all, it's all fun. It's, it's a good time. It's the New York groove. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Look at you. Throw it <laughs> in there. Throw it <laughs> in there. No, his solo album is great, but Yes. Again, you know, the performance is just absolutely fantastic on both sides of the album. It ends with she uh, and it just keeps going and it makes you realize when you're listening, listening to the album, especially years later, how great these songs were and how those three albums didn't do them justice. Yeah. Was she
0: a Wicked Lester song? Um, because I see a co-writing credit to one of the Wicked Lester guys. And so Possibly. I, actually, I, I don't know, but I was thinking I I do like the song. It's 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 Gene Simmons and, and Steve uh Cornell uh credited with writing credits and who was uh, a Wicked Lester member. So I, I I actually meant to go check that out
3: and I have them. Yeah, I, I think it is I think they did use a handful of songs that were recorded with Wicked Lester uh prior to Gene and Paul leaving. And uh interesting backstory on Steve Cornell is that he was charged with possessing child pornography in 2016 or 2014. So um yeah. That's a interesting, I don't know how on that. <laughs> interesting what, what happened to what happened to Steve there. Um yeah. not a good not a not a good thing, obviously, but yeah, he he did wrote a, uh, a handful of songs uh, with Gene and Paul in Wicked Lester, and she was one of them. She's probably the most popular song that he did, or they, they gave him credit on. Yeah, yeah. So into side C, you get Watching You in a Hundred Thousand Years and Black Diamond. Hundred Thousand Years has always been one of my favorite deep cuts. I consider it kind of a deep cut for Kiss, and then of course Black Diamond with the uh, vocals shared by Paul Stanley and Peter Chris, Yeah. A
0: hundred thousand years is the song in the album where Peter Chris gets his extended drum moment. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That's the, where he has his, his solo that goes on. It's the only time on the album drums are really highlighted. A lot of it, his drums are, um, I wish they'd been mic'd a little more closely or something. I wish the drums were a little more, Forward in the mix, but a hundred thousand years has his extended um, um, solo where it's kind of his moment, obviously, and it's the only time where he really uses the floor tom and, and his other toms pretty extensively. I think you know his his drumming style is is a little different from a lot of rock drummers, and I'm certainly no drummer, but it sounds like to me he does a lot of like inflection with the snare that other drummers might be hitting, like a, a cymbal or a tom, and he he does like just. Sticks to the snare more, but he he expands himself on 100,000 years. I'm with you. I dig the song.
3: Yeah, it's a great track. And Black Diamond, I think, is for we, we get further along or farther away from this album. It seems like Black Diamond doesn't garner the same appreciation as it once did. I think that's another great, darker track that Kiss did along the lines of Parasite. Um, a lot more of a, of a, a darker tone of, of with lyrics and music. And I, I don't know if they play it anymore on their current end of the road tour, or if they've stopped playing it, but it's a great track. One that is starting to be forgotten by, uh, by KISS fans or not by KISS fans, but by fans that like KISS in, in general.
0: I really like Black Diamond. I like Peter Chris's singing. Um, I dig that kind of whiskey voice that he's it's got making. that
3: Rod Stewart style.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's a great um, seasoning to the, to the kiss mix. And and so I've always liked this song. I, I like the way the, the live version sounds better than off of the self-titled album um, doing no small part to the ending i mean the, the studio album it has that it sounds like the tape is slowing down and going and it feels like it just goes on and on but it, they don't have that same thing here And so i think this is definitely a better rendition of the song
3: <laughs> yeah i agree i agree um again sequencing important is you kind of keep moving forward when the show keeps moving forward there's no let up there's no there's there, there isn't a chance for the crowd to kind of catch their breath and That's the whole essence of the show is to keep that energy going and flowing throughout the crowd. And that is why this album is such a staple and why so many bands, so many artists who are influenced by Kiss Alive carry that torch in terms of that live performance and wanting to kind of match that same type of energy. And as we head into to side D, it starts off with rock bottom, which I think is another great underrated kiss song. It really does show the diversity of ace freely because you don't really talk about diverse car- guitar playing when you talk about ace. Ace is a blues guy. He's a rock guy, but you have this beautiful piece of, of music before rock bottom that is really underappreciated. Yeah. I'm surprised they, they did that live. Because it's kind of the really the only extended slowdown in the energy of the show. Maybe this is the the part where the audience can kind of you know catch their breath a little bit before it goes into the conclusion of the show and the conclusion of the album. But Rock Bottom, they nail it live. Uh, really does a great job, of course. A song that doesn't get recognized as much as it should. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's funny how many great songs are all called Rock Bottom that are out there. <laughs> totally, yeah, yeah. But you're right, and I, and and you're talking about the sequencing. Um, I think is is really underscored right here, where you can't have it hundred miles an hour the entire show, or you will wear your audience out by the end of the fifth song, and you won't. They won't be able to maintain their connection with the, the artist. But if you have like peaks and valleys and, and times where the, the audience can sit back and take a breath. And that really lets them catch up to the, to the next song, um, which in this case would be Cold
3: Gin. <laughs> the great Ace Frehley track, uh, written by Ace Frehley, sung by Gene Simmons. Uh, Cold Gin, I know people like to talk about rock and roll all night or shout out loud or Detroit Rock City as being the Kiss staple. But for me, the song Cold Gin really embodies what Kiss is about. Uh,
0: Yeah. I really wonder if if, if this song was released today, how much flack would they get for the, the, we got a drink, man. We got a (laughs) drink.
3: There's a lot of songs that could be, yeah, yeah. You know, if they released today, you know, what would be the reaction to it? And, you know, different times or, you know, in different causes and different, different Different tones, tones. But, but, um, Yeah. This song just really has always been a kind of an animal for me. You know, it's always got, it's got a great groove. It's got a great riff. It's got great energy. I think it's, you know, obviously rock and roll all night kind of garners all the attention on this album because that was really the big hit, but I've always wanted them to, them to play this as the closer when they, when they play, because I think it's, I think it's the perfect song that's, to close because when, yeah. you, when you're done with the show, you're going to go out and drink and have a good yeah. and continue the party.
0: Yeah. It's got some tasty licks in it too, that, that Ace threw in there and it's presented on this album as the show closer prior to the encore song. Right.
3: Right. And then into the encore, it goes into rock and roll all night, which I think every rock fan has heard this song, you know, pretty much the song that they're known for this the the live version is 10 times better than the studio version the studio version is very flat as most of the material is but again this was the one that was played on radio when i was growing up the live version because you've got the paul stanley brief banter in the beginning of the of the single version uh but this is the song that was played on all the jukeboxes and on the radio stations and you know, if there's one song that defines being overplayed, it's probably "Rock and Roll all Night" by Kiss. Maybe, maybe, maybe just a hair behind. "You shook me all night long." Maybe just a hair. You know, I
0: I, I don't know if I should even confess this. I can't stand this song.
3: <laughs> I used to love it. I used to love it when when I was a kid, but I, it just doesn't do anything for me anymore.
0: It um, it's like if I listen to all the early Kiss albums. <clears throat> I've never liked this song.
3: (laughs) Well, I don't like the next one. Let me go. Rock and roll has always been my least favorite popular kiss song, or if you call it popular, I never got it. I always thought it was kind of cheesy and kind of boring, you know, and rock and roll night essentially has come to that with me as well. It's kind of boring and it's kind of monotonous. And I liked it when I was a kid, but there's so much more to kiss besides rock and roll all night. Yeah. And I think ending with rock and roll all night and then let me go rock and roll is kind of repetitive. You know, I mean, because rock and roll all night and party every day. Let me go rock and roll. So you're going to go party all night, you know, and yeah. and, and <laughs> you know what I mean? So I don't know. I, I, I every time let me go rock and roll comes on, whether it's the live version, the studio version, I always kind of skip.
0: Yeah, well, I can't fault you, <laughs> but um, I I think that they, there could have been a better selection. I mean, I know, obviously, that this was the song is Rock and Roll All Night is one of their biggest hits. It's one that everyone expects to hear. Having it presented as an encore song makes sense from that perspective. Um, Let Me Go Rock and Roll isn't quite as overplayed as, as Rock and Roll All Night. Um, but I, I do think there's other stronger stuff out there that um, would be a great show closer.
3: Yeah, I, again, I, my vote is with Cole Jin on this tour, you know, on, on, on the, a live album tour is definitely Cold Gin. But even now, I mean, I think they're I think they close sometimes at Shout Out Loud or they close sometimes at Detroit Rock City. Um, I still think if I was writing a set list, it would be Cole Jinn. That would be the encore closer, not just the the regular performance closer, but that would be my encore.
0: I would. Uh, I'll, I'll vote for that. I like, I would like Cold as a as a size of a uh, concert closer.
3: You know, when we think and talk about this album, we think about all the turmoil that was behind the scenes and how this album breaks through, regardless of that. Because usually, when you know there is turmoil and there is tension and there's unknown happening with a record label, those albums typically don't do very well, right? You, you know, you have this failing record label that eventually did fail you know years later um i think they filed for bankruptcy and then that was it but surprisingly a band that really had some momentum but not enough i mean you have to take yourself back to 1974 75 when there's no internet and there's no social media you know it's basically word of mouth and of course You know, fans were showing up at the show, but the record label couldn't match what they were doing at the show and at the concerts. They decided to do this and they released it. Typically, the way this story usually goes is they release it and then it's dead in the water and then they fold up and then the band is no longer. Because you really didn't get second chances back then with, um, you know, with, with records. And different time. Obviously, they gave you more time to kind of be nourished. And they kind of gave you more time to to grow, but I mean, if you're dropped from a record label in the '70s like that, and you've got really nothing going on, you typically won't get picked up by another record label. Yeah,
0: and actually, I, I think they deserve some credit for also cranking out three studio albums and a live album in a fairly short amount of time—two years. Yeah, I mean, you got the the, the um, self-titled album is coming out in '74, and by the end of '75, you have a catalog of three studio albums and, and a live album. That's That's some significant hard work being put into it. And, of course, the genius behind the KISS merchandising helps carry them on.
3: Well, did they? Yeah, they didn't have the merchandise, though, back then. They didn't really start the merchandise until after KISS Alive too. You know, I mean, and again, after KISS Alive, they did two studio albums, studio album and live album. So for four years, they put out eight albums, six studio albums, you know, and of course, 75, 76, 77 was really their their prime. And then 78, they had the, the, the studio albums, or the, or the solo albums, I should say. Yeah, And then everything kind of took a tumble when Dynasty came out and Unmasked and, and then The Elder. And of course, if you look back on that stuff, Dynasty is a lot more appreciated now than it was when it was first released. I know there's people that claim I was made for loving you it was this great song and this and that, but the album did not do very well. And as a whole, and neither yeah. did unmasked. And then it just kept bottoming out with the elder. Um, and, and, and I even say, because of those three albums, kiss is still working to try to fight back to get that popularity that they once had. And they'll, they'll never regain it. Obviously the end of the road tour is here and they're, they're finalizing their career But even like in the mid 80s, when they had the run of Creatures, which didn't sell very well either, um, which is but it's a fantastic album. Look it up and analyze into Asylum and all those albums that came after that. They had a lot of great songs and they were part of that genre during during the heyday of the 80s. But they never could get back to that level. And I think a lot of it was tension within the band. You know, you had Ace not showing up in the studio. You had Peter. Um not getting along with the other members and quitting the band after Dynasty. Um, and then it just yeah, they never could regain it. There was chemical problems, substance abuse problems, not getting along, and I think also the focus of merchandise became more the focus instead of the music. Yeah. So this was really like you said, when you think of that this album 75, by the end of 77. I mean, they had basically a two and a half year run where they were the biggest thing in the business
0: yeah and it's, it's amazing how much they connected with kids and um, people who are my age because I, I remember some of my, my school classmates like seventy, seventy six, seventy seven, seventy76 seventy seven and they had like kiss trading cars, and they were all into it and it, did you ever have um since, since you're from from an area where there's plenty of snow, did you have, did you have like moon boots? they were big oh
3: yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah and and i have i have to wonder were moon boots successful because of kiss because they were like similar to the kinds (laughs) of things they were wondering
3: (laughs) that's a good point i know i had the kiss slippers years ago um with uh with jeans boots or not yeah. like they were like, but they were just like the bottom part of his boots with like the the, the demon eyes and yeah, the, the claws. You know, so the I the had fans. that yeah. <laughs> uh, years ago. So that was a thing. But he, the merchandise really was integral to keeping them relevant because their music wasn't really living up to what fans expected. Yeah. But the merchandise, every kid, when you went down the toy section, you know, whether you saw the Kiss lunchbox or the Kiss phonograph or you know, Halloween masks or whatever, you know, that kept them, that kept the interest going with the band. But in the end, it's the music that matters. And once those young kids started to get older, they wanted more in terms of the music, but also what really meant a lot to them too was, you know, that was the star Wars generation towards the end of the seventies. Right. So there was a sense of wonder when you were a kid of, you know, the star Wars and the, and the galaxy. And then you had kiss, you know, kind of being these alien life forms or these out of this world life forms that really tapped into that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, that's another reason. And that, I, my mother used to say to me all the time, cause I was a big kiss fan growing up. They would, they would, you never would have hear from them if it wasn't for the masks or wasn't for their faces, it wasn't for their image. And she's right. Yeah. Without that imagery, without those faces, Kiss either becomes a band that maybe releases an album or two, and they become one of those bands that, oh, this band, you know, had these two albums, and it's like this deep you know, dive into like an unknown artist, you know, similar to what some of us do on the Groove Council, like a band like Detective yeah. or a band like Hawkwind or something like that, a band that, you know, maybe released three albums and never did anything that's what they would have become if they didn't have the masks there's no way they would got they would have probably even get not signed without that imagery without that that uh mystery
0: well would you really have um all all the bands that that followed up with some sort of like face makeup or concealing their identities behind masks like slipknot um would you really have any of that if kids hadn't come along and put on that kabuki makeup to begin with I don't think you would.
3: Yeah, it's a good question because there was Alice Cooper who kind of yeah. had some stuff going on too as well with, with the imagery. But was Alice at the level KISS was in terms of popularity? He was popular in the 70s. Yeah. But was he out of the stratosphere like KISS was? I mean, 75 no, they... to 70 and to 77. I mean, I, I mean, I don't think Alice can touch that.
0: No, I mean, well, Kiss had Paul Lind and the fan of the Opera, and mm-hmm. Alice had his appearance on the Muppets Show. I don't know if those are in the same league or not.
3: <laughs> yeah, I just I don't know. I, I don't know if Alice. I mean, he's got you know a lot of recognizable songs. He's got a lot of a lot of great popular things happening, but Kiss was just another level, though, right? I mean, Kiss was just Kiss, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that I mean Alice is certainly a, a topic for discussion, especially some of his um when the when the band Alice Cooper ended and the individual Alice Cooper kept going, he hit a sweet spot in the 70s that's hard to match, especially when you're talking about like um uh Billion Dollar Babies and um Um Alice Goes to Hell and um Welcome to My Nightmare, which is my personal favorite. and, and the level of musicianship and songwriting on what my nightmare is, is incredible. And it, it's just not the same. It's not the same level of over the top. Everything that kiss was. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. Kiss okay. was over the top. And that was the whole spectacle. That was the whole point of it, you know, was yeah. to attract fans with that over the top uh, performance. And that, like I said, at the beginning of this conversation is what made them who they were because other bands had to step up their game with, the pyros and all that stuff and yeah. step up their performance. Because when you put this, when you capture this live event, this live concert on an album and you've that with the cover that it has, I mean, that, that's blown away the competition in
0: 1975. Yeah. It, to me, it really spells the difference between going to just a concert. But when you're going to see kiss, you're going to see a rock and roll show. I mean, this mm-hmm. is, show right here
3: yeah yeah it always was a show i mean the last time i saw them was i saw them on the reunion and i saw them when they released that first album when ace and peter came back Yeah, so that was the last time i saw them in concert i think that was like around 2000 2001 maybe, maybe 99 mm-hmm. yeah. maybe 98 so hard. Once you you get old, your memory just goes, you you know, uh, but yeah. And and again, it was still that sense of wonder. I felt like that eight year old kid, once again, that eight, nine, 10 year old kid, seeing the guys in makeup, seeing them perform. There's nothing like it. There is, there is nothing like a kiss performance. I know the end of the road shows going on and I know there's been a lot of critiquing and and a lot of people saying a lot of negative things about it. And I think they deserve it because their performances has weakened over the years. And they're probably they probably stuck around maybe six to 10 years too long. Yeah. Well, it's hard um, to give,
0: give that up, I imagine.
3: It's hard to give that up. You know, it's like a, having it's like an athlete having to retire. They can't make the tackles anymore. They can't hit the ball anymore. They can't shoot the shoot the uh, the basketball. But, you know, they get old. And artists and musicians do too as well, and you couple that with the fact that two of the original members are not in the band, and they have two guys playing those original members. Yeah. For a long time, Kiss fan like myself, it bothers me. It does, and I don't. And unfortunately, I don't think I'll be I'll be seeing that performance. They're free to do whatever they want, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing too. I want I want to make clear: everyone is entitled to leave when they want, right? There's no there's no standard of of oh you must leave now and and whatever. If they want to keep performing and people want to keep seeing them. Hey, knock yourself out.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I agree with you. I just to me the the pinnacle of kiss in my mind is is this era in the 70s. And when we're done talking, maybe I'll go find some space nineteen ninety-nine toys to play with and uh pretend I'm still a let kid.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. What does this album mean to you? Like when you as we wrap up here. Well,
0: I mean, it's certainly it's the album that put KISS on the radar of uh, most rock fans, and, and me, me too. I think that the first KISS stuff that I heard was off of this album um, when it first came into my, um, my sphere of influence, so to speak. Um, and I would hear some of the live stuff being played, and the Destroyer not too long after that, because Beth was all over the radio. Um, but uh, this has like an iconic place in the live show, not just the live concerts, not just the performances, the show. And it brings an energy level to the songs that wasn't there previously. um, That really makes you want to rock out to it.
3: Yeah. My thoughts on this, my final thoughts are, this is their legacy. If there is one album that they put out studio live albums, doesn't matter. If this is the album that you recommend to friends, if this is the album that you go to when you want to hear some kiss, that's it. That's their legacy. That is what they're about. They will always be known as having probably the the best, one of the best live albums of all time with one of the great live performances. People may say Destroyer. Some of them people may say Rock and Roll Over or Love Gun or whatever album they want to pick, but in essence, this is where it starts for the Kiss legacy. This is where yeah. history starts.
0: <laughs> yeah, this—if uh, it wasn't for this album, I don't think the band would have gone much further.
3: <laughs> it is. It's an integral part. It's a very important part of their history. So,
0: frankly, I frankly wish Strange
3: Ways was on it. <laughs> I'm—I wish Coming Home was on it. Yeah, I love Coming Home off a of Hotter Than Hell. That's my favorite deep cut by them. But. Rob, it's been a blast. Thanks for doing this once again. Again, this is our fourth installment of the live album review. Check out our previous ones with "Live and Dangerous" by Thin Lizzy, "Live After Death" by Iron Maiden, and Rockin' the Fillmore" by Humble Pie.
0: Thanks, Rob. Beyond Jay, I love talking about this stuff. I love, I love the preparation and going back and listening to the albums. It like, really just gets me into the live album every time I listen.
3: For sure, that's part of the fun of it. Thanks, Jerry. I'm in. Take care. Take care, everybody who's listening. Stay safe. Stay safe. Stay healthy. We'll talk soon.